Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Chris Wright. Chris is the outgoing chief executive of Catch22. Catch22 is a charity that supports young people and families in the realms of justice, apprenticeships, education and elements of social care. So as you can imagine, it's a pretty wide ranging conversation and Chris is one of those deep thinkers about public services. He is uh, a maverick. He wants to make the system work better and cares deeply about both how public money is spent but more importantly about outcomes for young people and the discussion is a lot about how the system as it currently works is not designed to allow really innovative and radical thinking in terms of how we support people. But Chris doesn't just diagnose the problem, he has plenty of ideas on how to fix it as well. So we talk a lot about challenging the bureaucratic mindset. We talk about how not to be seduced by revenue when you're running an organisation. We talk about how it's important to create space for well-intentioned failure. We talk about creating environments where you can experiment and you can radically rethink how public services are being delivered and often that is at a very local level and there's absolutely loads more but you can probably tell already how excited i am about sharing this episode with you so let's get straight to it chris a very warm welcome onto the radical reformers podcast i wonder if you could start just by telling listeners a little bit about who you are Thanks, Andrew, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Chris Wright. I'm currently the chief executive at Catch22. Uh, Catch22 is a we we define ourselves as a social business. Uh, we're a charity by governance and uh, operate across the uh, welfare cycle in delivering a range of public services. So principally funded through um, government contracts, although we do have 
some support from corporates as well. Uh, I've been doing that for 11 years as the CEO. Um, I was previously um, in the, um, uh, the chief operating officer at Catch-22. Catch-22 in itself came about in 2008 following the merger of two other uh, charities, Rayner, which has a very long, illustrious history and um, crime concern. And um, before um, Catch-22 came about, I was the um, director of services in Rayner and I joined them in 2006. And prior to that, I'd had a career in the public sector, originally trained as a social worker, became a probation officer, got involved in youth justice and ended up at the Youth Justice Board for a period um, in the early 2000s. That's very interesting. A lot of the most successful leaders I speak to on this podcast have worked on the front line. And that, you know, that experience of being a social worker and working in probation, I mean, I'm guessing it would have been much harder to do the, the jobs you've done without that first hand experience. I think, you know, there's that, uh, there's that expression, isn't there, about being time served. And, um, I, you know, I'm really glad and grateful for the opportunities I've had uh, on the front line. And, um, you know, it feels like a long time ago, but it does give you an insight into um, the lives of people you're working with and supporting and also what it means to be a frontline practitioner and the stresses and strains associated with that. Um, yeah. It doesn't necessarily equip you with all the technical capabilities you need when you're running a, quite a large business. And so you have to grow into that uh, as you establish yourself in, in your new roles. So what made you take the leap from the public sector, which I think certainly at the time you're talking about would have felt like a very job for life thing into the charitable sector, which is less stable, but obviously has benefits as well. As is, that's a really good question, because if, if I if I claim that I planned you know, my career, I would um, be misleading um, everybody. But I, I, I actually think the reason I left the public sector is pretty illustrative of a lot of my, um, my my later kind of thinking and ideas around how public services could be organised. And I think I ultimately left because I felt that I wasn't able to achieve the things I wanted to achieve. And I found, I found myself not necessarily fitting the expectations of uh, management within public systems. And I, 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 I went for one... I can remember going for one interview in, in the day to be a chief probation officer and um, I, I didn't succeed. And, and when I eventually got some feedback, I was told the reason that they didn't think I was appointable was because I wasn't the kind of person they could have dinner with. Right. Now, it's very hard to believe that somebody would say that to you. And this is the you know um, early 2000s. Uh, but it, it, you know, that's verbatim for feedback. Um, you weren't the kind of person people could have dinner with. And, and I, I, I went away from that thinking, well, what's, what's all that about? And um, I, I just kind of, I, I probably had a more entrepreneurial uh, approach to things than was, was, was acceptable uh, in the public. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure what sort of dinners these people are into. I, I was expecting you to say, Something like too maverick or maybe even at that stage of your career, too much of a risk, too much of a radical thinker, challenges the system too much. But I, I find it ridiculous to 
accept that excuse. But anyway. But I think it's a metaphor for that. You know, maybe yep. I was just seen as being too kind of, yeah, different. And, um, I, you know, I wanted to do things differently. And um, maybe, you know, essentially it's a proxy for thinking I wasn't a safe pair of hands. So th- this reminds me, your mindset at that time reminds me a lot of, um, I think you'll probably know, my organization, Mutual Ventures, has supported a lot of groups of staff to spin out of the public sector into social enterprises and mutuals. And that feeling of not quite fitting, not being right within that system, is pretty consistent. And I just thought it was a fantastic idea of the governments to recognize that in some people and to facilitate their smooth move into a more free, open, entrepreneurial environment that where they could really push the boundaries of public services. Now, we will get into that in in a great deal of detail. But before I do, I want to just acknowledge that I know, and it's it's public knowledge now, that you're leaving your position in Catch-22. And certainly my uh, experience of working with you and having heard about the work that you've done and Catch-22 have done, that it's been incredibly successful and and really something to be very proud of. But I'd love to ask you what you're most proud of over your 11 plus years at Catch-22. Gosh, there's there's lots of things, um, you know, there's lots of things I've got wrong. Um, well, and I, I have that as a question as well. So. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the things I'm most proud of, I'm, I'm really proud of we created an organisation in uh, which is based in Liverpool called Capacity. Um, and we won a competition at Big Society Capital uh, ran a few years ago in 2014 called the Business Impact Challenge. And um, we worked with a large publicly listed company um, to to enter that competition. And the idea was to create an organisation which could help hopefully uh, challenge some of the um, orthodoxy around how public services were run and organised. And um, and we we did that. We won the competition and we created capacity. And um, I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of um, some of the incubation projects we've um, launched at Catch-22. The work we've done with the Lighthouse with Emmanuel has been you know, one of um, a, a great journey. And, um, their and what is that? Just just explain that briefly. So the Lighthouse is a, a, an approach to residential children's homes um, based on social pedagogy so it's not you know it's not radical in the sense that social pedagogy has been a well-established theoretical um, methodology but actually working from scratch to create the idea design the first home recruit the the staff train them in the in the approach and um, get it up and running that's been raise the money all of that's been you know a great thing we, we also um, incubated um, Unlock Graduates, which um, is doing great work in the prison system, recruiting high quality graduates to become prison officers. Really proud of that. A couple of years ago, we created a joint venture with an Australian private company, which secured one of the DWP restart contracts um, last May. Uh, and that, that's been, been great. But do you know... I, I, I don't want this to sound too cheesy, but one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of is that we work, we've worked hard to create an organisation which values and recognises people in, in the work that they do. And um, so we, we've 
We have a lot of internal promotions within Catch-22, so we, we focus on growing our own. And um, and it's great to see people move through the organisation. And, yeah. um, you know, part some of that's because that's the most sensible way of um, building an organisation is to look after your people. And we've not always been able to hold on to everybody, of course, because we're an organisation which contracts, contracts end. Um, so people move on. Also, you know, we're an entry point for people who want to start in this kind of work. And um, and they might come and work with us for a couple of years and hopefully they get a really good experience from us. And then we can feed them back into the wider system and uh, yeah. have some um, good grounding. So, you know, of course, you know, it's not we don't always get that right either. But uh, that's that's the ambition of the organisation. And you mentioned culture there. Culture is incredibly important. But I, I want to ask you about that. But before I do, probably at the start, I should have probably ask for just a couple more bits of detail about, about Catch-22. So roughly what size of an organisation is it? So in terms of revenue, you know, we fluctuate between 50 and 60 million turnover. We employ around 12, 1300 people. We reached last year, according to our um, impact report, we reached 160,000 service users. Some of that is relatively cursory engagement and some of it's very deep through um, the work we do in some of the schools uh, we're responsible for. So, yeah, it's a, um, in, in charitable terms, it's, it's sizable, it's, it's not enormous. Um, and um, I mean, it's a fascinating thing judging an organisation by size, you know, because actually we really should be judged by our impact and um, I, I think we've been trying to focus a lot on impact in certainly in the last four or five years um, but in order to be able to deliver impact you've got to have some scale <laughs> and, uh, true. very true and the only reason I, I ask is that so listeners have in their heads if they haven't heard of Catch 22 is this you know 20 people in a room or is this a national organization and it's absolutely a, a national organization just to come to the culture point then, how do you, so this is a big organisation, 1,200 people, let's say, how do you actually make sure a culture is consistent and shared across an organisation that size? Because that, when we're thinking, a lot of the people listening to this will be equally large or even larger yeah. public service organisations, and, and quite often it's seen as just too tough and not to crack and it's a it's a real tough nut to crack and um when you asked me the question about what i've not got right i probably didn't focus enough on culture in the early days because you know i was focusing on strategy and growth and being clear about who we were but you're nothing unless you have people who embrace what it is you're doing so when you're a dispersed organization i think it's really hard to embed consistent culture in every part of the organization. So I, I was talking to a, an ex-head teacher once who, who'd led a very large comprehensive school, and she talked to me about how she would um, walk around the school, be seen around the school every day as her approach to creating the right kind of culture. Um, now, clearly in an organization which is dispersed, it's very difficult to be seen everywhere all the time. So we've we've worked quite hard at 
how we on our staff engagement, employee engagement strategies, um, we use the, the latest technology as uh, well as we can. In fact, you know, I think the pandemic, one of the, <laughs> if you can talk about an upside in a pandemic, one of one of the upsides has been the greater connectivity brought about by the use of this type of technology, Teams and Zoom and um, all the different kind of interactive platforms that we've been able to to roll out. I think it's being consistent in your messaging. It's about celebrating um, people. It's about celebrating the success that the organisation has. It's also about being honest about when things go wrong. So, you, and you can never stop. It's it's one of those. You know, you never arrive at the culture. You just got to keep on trying to. Um, create the conditions in which people can give as good as they as, as they can and want to be part of something and recognizing that you don't always get it right you know and being trying to be as honest as you can and do, do you put a lot of effort i'm sure the answer to this is yes but it'd be just interesting to get a, a little bit of detail but do you put a lot of effort into recruiting particularly senior people now you did mention that you like to help people progress within the organization which obviously helps from a cultural perspective, but I presume that top team that surrounds you, they all have to really get what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and and again, you know, I've I've, I've not got that right as well. And we've had uh, you know a number of iterations of what the top team looks like. And um, back in 2017, we introduced um, our new target operating model, if you want to use that language, and we introduced a C-suite and. Um, and I, I'm surrounded by the most capable, brilliant, engaged colleagues I've ever worked with. And I'm, I'm so privileged to, to work alongside those colleagues. And we've, we've worked very hard at building a collaborative, collegiate leadership culture, um, which, you know, and our responsibility is to try and mirror that throughout the organization. And, um, I've also built teams which, have been so kind of internally competitive that they haven't been able to mirror yeah. the culture you want. And you know, we we had one my one of my first operating model iterations was um, you know where we had in effect ma- managing directors running different hubs within the business, and they were they were um, in charged with revenue cost contribution. Get on with building your business and and people focused on that the consequence of that is that they ended up uh, focusing so much on their own activity that they didn't think about wider wider organization so they they weren't doing anything wrong they were doing what we asked them to do Um, but we the incentives were not the uh, collaborative incentives of collaboration yeah i i completely understand that and certainly in our market you know consultancy there's the temptation to structure things like that as well i've experienced this in organizations that i previously worked in that you almost get one part of the organization you know if if there's an opportunity to bid for work they're almost hiding it from the other part of the organizations so that they don't get the revenue and i know that's an extreme example but that's the ultimate outcome of that potentially. So like we we're already talking about this now, but I, I did flag that my next question was going to be about things that you wished you'd done differently. And you've mentioned their team structure, incentives, that type of thing. What else is there that you'd like to have done a bit differently in your time? 
Well, I think I probably got, as, as I said, I, I focus, I got the messaging wrong around how to develop the organization. So I think I, I spent too much time talking explicitly about growing the organization without backing up with the reason why we wanted to grow the organization. And that kind of fed into a perception that we were interested in, you know, the top line as opposed to, you know, the double bottom line of impact and, um, and, and, and profitability. Mm. Um, and, and, and that, once you're on that journey, it takes quite, it's quite hard to put a break on that and kind of shift that kind of it, narrative. It's a big tanker to stop and, and turn. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I, I was introduced in, um, the, uh, in about 2015 to a, a re- it might be 2016 to a really interesting um, paper that had been published by the Stanford Innovation Review called What's Your End Game? And it challenged organizations, you know, in our sector to be really clear and define what their purpose was at the beginning um, and then work towards that purpose. And it set out a number of different end game, end game options. And one of them was something called government adoption. And it really resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is test out how to do things on the ground and use that insight to say to government, actually, you can think differently about policy and how you organise public services. Um, so I grabbed hold of it and I thought, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to pivot the organisation to focus on our end game. And again, you know, I, I was really excited by it, but I probably didn't build the infrastructure necessary to to ensure that we could deliver it. And that took another two or three years to get to the point where yeah. we're much clearer about what we mean by that. Yeah. So do you think you could have achieved the impressive growth and expansion of the impact that Catch-22 has without that focus on the top line? Or, or, or is what you're saying really is that, there was a way of doing that whilst having more of a, a focus on the, the outcome and the end game you, that you're trying to achieve and keep everybody motivated from a vision perspective, not just a revenue perspective. Yeah, I think you can get seduced by revenue and and also, but not the quality of revenue necessarily as well. So, you know, you know these these are all the kind of commercial lessons I've learned along the way. And I think they're a, they're a consequence of not having a, a grounding in in business. So you, you, you know, I was focused on, I thought, right, we'd reach by, by having, by growing, we'd reach out to as many people as we could get to, but without actually thinking through what the consequences of growth meant in terms of you know, the cash implications of supporting the growth. The, the fact that, you know, some of that, some of that business wasn't delivering the kind of contribution margin necessary to support the infrastructure. And so you, you, you know, you, you have to be much more, you, you have to be more, what's the word I'm looking for? Interrogative, if that's a word, I don't know, of why you're doing these things. And, and, and yeah, so I just thought growth equaled doing more, equaled more impact. And it, yeah. it really isn't as simple as that. You have to be much more um, questioning of what you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that and all of that makes sense to me and I think there'll be a lot of lessons in there for you know not just people starting off building an organization but sizable organizations at their midpoint in their their journey you know it's never too late to to change 
the direction of the oil tanker. You know, you can do it, but as you say, it can take a few years, but it can be done. So um, you and I, over the years, have had some fantastic discussions about public services, what the challenges are, what it should be like. And I've been very excited to just share some of those discussions with everybody. So I've got a few questions here for you that I think should trigger the sorts of interesting and exciting conversations that we've had in the past. So if we start just generally with public services, because I know that you're a very keen student of how this all works. What do you think the main challenges and problems with how public services are commissioned and delivered at the minute are? Just in a nutshell, I think we're, we're operating in an increasingly unforgiving landscape where there's no um, room for failure. And that leads to um, services which are uh, driven by the need to be compliant, where we spend a lot of our time hitting the target but missing the point. And I, I think we, as a consequence of that compliance-led culture it's reduced the opportunity for people to you know take risk um, and look it's very difficult to take risk when you're dealing with people's lives and I understand that from my my perspective public services have become increasingly remote from the people who uh, are the recipients of those services they've become very much driven by the needs of the producer and not necessarily those of the user and um, and we've lost sight of what we're there to do. I, I think there are lots of brilliant people in our public systems working very hard to deliver as best quality services as they can, but they're working in spite of the system. And I I, I think this you know this, obviously we're all part of the system and we we have a responsibility um, for our respective roles within it. But we've become I've just written something for MPC and I've referred to the kind of bureaucratic mindset and how the bureaucratic mindset is the orthodoxy which oversees the way public services are delivered. And consequently, we're focusing on this notion of compliance as opposed to how we can be more agile, more relational, more intimate, more local, uh, more responsive. Um, MPC, that's New Philanthropy Capital, yeah. Um, yeah. So just to, to bring this to life a bit, could you give an example in whatever way, shape or form that you can of an example of a of a service provision that falls into this trap? And it doesn't have to be a specific thing, just to bring it to life a bit. Eileen Monroe wrote a, a seminal um, report into the child protection system back in 2010, 2011. And she commented on the bureaucracy confronting social workers. And there's a famous quote where she refers to social workers spending their time doing things right as opposed to doing the right thing. And and I think that captures it in many ways, really, yeah. that people are very busy doing things right because they're being compliant, they're following the process. And, of course, you know, when things go wrong, the any review or inquiry looks at whether the process has been followed, whether the policy has been followed, whether and and and, and I, I'm not I'm not some um, you know, anarchist saying that we shouldn't have any kind of process. But I, I'm I'm concerned that the, the the systems and the processes that we put in place have become so uh, rigorous 
that that it, it, it kind of limits the ability to for the practitioner to to behave using their their insight and their knowledge of the people they're supporting. When I was a probation officer, we used to talk about, and it sounds a bit like, you know, a bit grandiose, but we talked about clinical judgment, that you would be using your experience and insight of those people who are committing offences involved in, um, you know, behaviour which is damaging to them and the communities in which they live. And, and, and you would use your own judgment to work out what, you know what you might need to do with those people whereas we, we've kind of built a science around all this which you know is is important but it, it is a danger that it the um the, the, again there was a criminologist called i'm just trying to remember who it was i think it's mike nellis who talked about the probation officer as a craft worker as opposed to a um, production line operative and we're, we're following processes to such a degree it drives out innovation, imagination and, and, as I say, clinical judgment. Yeah. So just for clarity, the restrictions and the, the, the kind of constraints that you're talking about there, they're usually captured in the contract where the focus is very much on activity, let's say, rather than outcomes. Absolutely. Inputs and outputs. We. You know, we're brilliant at measuring inputs and outputs, but um, we're less focused on, you know, measuring what it is we're actually achieving and the outcomes we're achieving. And if we were to focus on outcomes, we'd be much more questioning of um, <laughs> the return on the investment. You know, yeah. so now look, this is, you know, and I, I say this incredibly, um, you know, I, re I recognize this is a very glib um, um, statistic. But, um, you know, we spend 11 billion pounds on our children in care a year. And if you look at the number of um, people in our prisons who've been in care, which I think in an adult prison is something like 25 percent of the population has been in the ch children's care system at some point. You know, you start to ask yourself questions about whether, you know, the, the investments we're making in parts of the system are, are delivering the kind of outcomes that we, we should expect for no, just from a financial point of view, but, but in people's lives, the impact on people. I'm really pleased that we're talking about this now because I'm extremely interested in the whole idea of risk and risk aversion. And, you know, I, I think the whole risk aversion thing assumes that most or all vulnerable people are being perfectly well served by the existing system. And very often they aren't. And, and actually, um, the biggest risk for individuals often is to let things go as they are. And I think it's very easy um, for somebody running a public service to say, right, well, I, you know, I don't want to take a risk of changing something in case it doesn't work. Um, but really what's happening with the existing system is that a lot of people are being continually and reliably let down by the system unless something new isn't tried or else, you know, if there isn't a different focus. So I'd love to get your thoughts on this now, just kind of flipping the question from the challenges that public services face to how you'd like to see things done differently. Yeah, and, and look, that doing things differently doesn't necessarily mean doing, doing things in a new way. I think we know what works. And one of the most effective ways of... Um, you know, work uh, delivering good outcomes is by building effective relationships with the people you're supporting. 
And, and so you need the time and effort to be able to do that. Some of the, the positive outcomes of a troubled families program, forget the nomenclature, but was time spent with families and um, children in a way, you know, a consistent uh, relationship could be built up where there's, um, you know, you get to know the, the requirements, the needs. You can spend time helping people build the necessary skills they need to uh, navigate their way through um, some of the challenges they face. So I believe absolutely fundamentally in the importance of relationships as being the way of affecting change and bringing about change in people. And therefore, we need to build a system which facilitates the creation of those founded professional relationships, which allow them, allow people to get insight and understanding of uh, what's going on in the, the lives of those people who are receiving the services. And so, so my point is that this isn't about, you know, some wobble factor 42. You know, this is something which is very kind of fundamental and well established. And, you know, in criminology, they talk about desistance theory and about the importance of a relationship. That's equally true in social work relationships. And, and it's true in healthcare as well, where um, the consistency of an intervention from a practitioner can lead to, um, you know, improved outcomes in health. So there's there's all kinds of evidence supporting the the, the 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 centrality of relationships. But we've built systems which are all about process, all about managing people through processes to the point where you, you you're you're measured on the timeliness of an assessment. You know, if you're if it's not done in five days, then you know you, you're going to get a a, um, a penalty. Um, but nobody's asking the question about the quality of the assessment, that it might actually take you three months before you know the person well enough to be making a judgment and an assessment about that person. So what do we need to do about it? We need uh, ultimately we need to <laughs> we need to stop. We need to stop doing what we're currently doing. Now, of course, that's not possible. But I do think we could think very imaginatively about how we could access capital to run systems, maybe new ways of doing things, this this kind of more intimate community-based relational approach by bringing in new capital, demonstrating that there you can staunch demand for acute services. And then over a period of, you no, know, I think this is a generational shift, over a generation, you, you start to move away from spending all the money on the acute side and moving the, the resources to, you know, upstream. And I think Treasury needs to think differently about how it how it um, measures public spend, expenditure. And so if you start and I haven't really thought this through sufficiently and you need proper economists to, to, to do this. But if you thought about people over a generation, so as a 25 year cycle, you start to um, create the conditions where I think you can deploy resources in a, a, a much more uh, relational effective way and you all about ultimately creating the conditions where you reduce demand for acute services mm -hmm. but you know this can't be done in a 12-month cycle or a three-year cycle or a five a parliamentary cycle this has to be done over a lifetime uh, and so I, I you know look bigger brains than mine um, need to to focus on that but a 25-year cycle it wouldn't be a bad idea so if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a local authority commissioner, 
who's really interested in this. How do they get their heads around this new way of thinking? And how do they sleep at night knowing that they still have sufficient, you know, sufficient grip on the work that they're commissioning, but yet they're allowing the freedom? Yeah. You know, if you just think of local authority and then think directors of children's services and, you know, the most difficult job probably in public service. Um, and therefore, you know, the fa- no, a failure it, uh, can result in a very serious consequence for families and children. And so there's a, you know, it's built into the system not to take risk. But I think, I think what we have to, what we have to be better at is demonstrating what the evidence tells us that you can mitigate the risk by doing things in a way that I'm advocating. And now, I'm not absolutely sure about this statistic, but um, the the number of children who die as a consequence of harm and neglect has stayed pretty static. It's, it's high, and it's remained pretty static throughout the last 25 years. And that's despite all the kind of system changes that take place after every um, serious incident, incident review or tragic instance, you know, such as Baby P, where, which results in the system doubling down, becoming more and more bureaucratic. And, but it hasn't changed anything. It doesn't fundamentally change. Well, it will That's change. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm really interested in whether um, we persuade ourselves that we're going to, the risks get reduced. But the evidence perhaps doesn't demonstrate that that's happening. Therefore, that creates the argument about maybe there are different ways of doing this. How do we build capability, capacity in our communities so that, you know, the, the risk is managed in a different way? When something like that happens, awful as it is, there is a need, a human need from ministers in government to do something. We must show that we're taking action and the media play their part in demanding some sort of change, some sort of new legislation. So I completely agree with you, but it feels like a very difficult thing to achieve in the current political and media climate that we're in, which is very much all about getting through the next five minutes rather than your 25-year Absolutely. You know, and I said a moment ago about we're operating in a very unforgiving um, yeah. environment and I believe that none of these things can happen in and of themselves. They have to happen as part of an overall kind of approach. So, you know, how do we democratise local communities? How do we hear what local people have to say? How do we respond to that? So I think there's a, you know, all of this is wrapped up in a much bigger constitutional issue about engagement and um, responding to what people uh, seek at a local level. Now, you know, that none of these things are easy, but unless you start to have a debate, and there's lots of really good people out there having the debate, and, you know, citizens' assemblies, there's a whole range of things going on which could create the conditions to reimagine how our public systems operate in the future. Yeah. Um, earlier, Chris, you mentioned finding innovative ways, ways of accessing capital and funding to fund public services. So, Recently, I've been getting very interested in venture capital and how new ideas in Silicon Valley are funded. Now, bear with me. I know this might seem uh, a far away from 
social care in Doncaster. But it's just it just strikes me that public services seem to always be the laggard in terms of new ideas and the kind of risk appetite for trying new things that don't necessarily work. And this is bearing in mind that we are talking about people's lives, but we are also talking about a system that is consistently failing a large number of people. So I'd really love to get your thoughts on this, because the previous episode was with Nick Temple from the social investment business, and we talked generally really good in-depth conversation about social investment. But it'd be good to get your thoughts as a provider, as the leader of a, a provider organization, as to how that experimentation, if you like, it might be funded or could be funded or could be tolerated so that we might be in a position to take those big giant leaps forward instead of just consistently incremental. Yeah. Well, look, I have to declare an interest because I'm a you know board member of Big Site Capital. So I, I, I'm a, a strong advocate of the role that social investment can play. Uh, but what it's exposed me to is the uh, knowledge that there's a huge amount of capital out there, which if we can create compelling arguments around its deployment. Now, the returns on that deployment might not just be financial returns, they're the social impact returns as well. And I think we're we're heading into a, a demographic shifts where people are thinking differently about what return on investment looks like and what capital return looks like. Um, so the growth of ESG, you know, we, this creates a real opportunity to think differently. So to your point, you might never be able to persuade venture capitalists to do it, you know, to take a, a reduced return on their investment. But you might be able to. And, and, and the way to do it, I think, is by I think we need to test out some of these these ideas in, in some communities where you raise a kind of community wealth fund. And you deploy that fund at the local level whilst the existing arrangements continue. So you're not withdrawing the current funding or the current arrangements. They continue whilst you build this new model of delivery in parallel and you fund it through this um, community wealth type methodology. And the returns can be underwritten by the Treasury um, over a long period of time. So if you can demonstrate that you're so you need patient capital you need it deployed at a community level and you need it to run in parallel to the existing system so that people are still getting access to the orthodoxy whilst you test out a new way of doing things. Now, I think that sounds extremely interesting. So what's the source of the funding in the Community Wealth Fund? Because I've read a bit about this and um, I guess that there's a number of ways you, you, you could do it. Well, again, I, I think you, you, you raise the fund, you go, you go to market and you try and get people to embrace what it is you're trying to, trying to achieve. So, you know, there might be institutional investors, there might be social investors, you know, pension funds, you know, we, we, you know, local authority pension funds. How about using those in a different way to support some of this? So, so there was something in the, in the leveling up white paper about those funds now being able to use a certain percentage for impact investment locally. So that that is a part there. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. This can't be just a couple of million quid. You know, you need big sums of money which you can deploy in order to shift the system. And so, you know, you might want to do it in, you know, several areas. And so you've got some kind of comparators. Mm. And 
And obviously things will look different in one area to another. So the idea that everything has to be the same is also, you know, I think one for the birds. It has to be relevant to the community in which you you, you live. And the, the, essentially what the investors need to know is that they're going to get some kind of return on their investment. And, and it, it can be a social return and a financial return. And some of that financial return might need to be underwritten by, uh, as I said, by public funding uh, but that can be that can be done over a long period of time uh, I, I just think that you know there are people out there who've got the brain power to make this work and then that would allow us yeah. to have different ways of doing things so it's, it's it's an incredibly interesting topic and if you look at the silicon valley model of venture capital um and i talked with nick a little bit about this in the previous episode they would say invest in 10 ideas in the knowledge that Nine will probably fail, but one will give them an at least 20 multiple back on their investment, which more than makes up for everything else. Now, public services is not in that position and nor should it be. But there is definitely something there about that seed funding that allows things to be trialed, because I was reflecting on this. And actually, if you think back to some of the really large government programs which have been rolled out and sometimes haven't worked so there was an NHS IT system, there was a child support agency IT system. Venture capital in this way is actually very structured and sensible. So there is a small amount of funding goes in at the start to try it on a small scale to kind of develop it, see if it works. Then the various rounds of growth funding come in and it expands. But actually, if you look at government programs, quite often they, they do it uh, largely theoretical design process and then it's straight to huge yeah. growth funding which just risks everything up 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 front yeah. rather than allowing maybe as you say three or four different versions to be trialed on a small scale you know it just actually it probably is more risky than the venture oh. capital approach and, and the thing is we, we continue to fund failure so you know <laughs> so we, we have to What's more important is, you know, is it to continue to do what we're currently uh, uh, no, currently doing, which isn't delivering the kind of results that we'd like to see? Or do we want to take the opportunity to say, actually, there is a different way of doing things as an evidence base, which, you know, suggests you can do it like this and it might deliver these kind of results. That's, we, you know, you, you, so when we talk about risk and say well no there's a risk this is about people's lives of course it's about people's lives but we're we're failing lots of people currently because the systems are not sufficiently agile or responsive to their needs or maybe many of our systems are still you know i know this is again a bit kind of cliche but many of our systems are analog and we're now in a, a very digital age that, that's true both literally and metaphorically yeah. Oh, Chris, I could talk to you all day about this, but our time is almost up. So as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to somebody in, in public services or in the third sector who wants to make the sort of impact that you've made? Um, I think you just you've got to stay optimistic, you know. So, you know, we actually one of the things Cash 22 has, has tried to be, we, we describe ourselves as an optimistic organisation. So it's ever so easy to become cynical and, you know, but that doesn't get you anywhere. I've never met anybody who doesn't want to do the right thing. You know, they do. So 
we're working we're not working against people we're working what we've got to do is is create the conditions in which people feel that they can do things differently constantly criticizing isn't going to get you anywhere but trying to be constructive engaged optimistic believe in people those are the things that sustain me absolutely i couldn't agree more chris many thanks for your time pleasure thank you right 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 lots to chew over there you'll have noticed my continuing exploration of the idea of how to finance radical ideas and innovation in public services and Chris talked about community wealth funds and whether they might be the right thing where finance is raised at a local level to allow local experimentation. I think there really is something to this because in previous conversations with other guests, I think we've really landed on the fact that the place for innovation is at the local level. Central government might be able to provide some of the funding, but it's generally not the best scale or the right scale um, to experiment with new ideas, particularly when you're talking about services for people. I think local areas and individual councils should be supporting innovation and, and should be looking at ways to raise funding for innovation. But I also think mayoral combined authorities have a role to play here for things that might benefit from a slightly bigger scale, but yet have that diversity of population. A big part of any of this is Chris's idea of challenging the bureaucratic mindset. And I thought that quote um, that he attributed to Eileen Munro's report of doing everything right, but missing doing the right thing is key. And as Chris and I discussed, this all stems from the contracts that providers of public services are put under. And often they focus too much on inputs and outputs rather than outcomes and creating the freedom for the provider to try different things in order to achieve the outcomes that can leave the contract manager in a rather uncomfortable position of not knowing what they're measuring and that's okay but it's not the culture and it's not the environment within which we are operating in right now another thing i keep coming back to more recently in these interviews is the idea that public services are somehow risk averse and it's just becoming ever more clear to me that a lot of vulnerable people are not being served well by the system as it stands so actually the biggest risk to them is for nothing to change and i said exactly the same thing last week but the conversation with chris today has just further emphasized that point for me so that's everything for this episode as usual a huge thank you for your time I know everyone is busy and to give up an hour to spend listening to some of these conversations, I, I really appreciate it. So don't forget to register on the website or to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thank you.